I think when it comes to challenges, I think you've got to do everything you can to to find a solution to those challenges. And once again, the mind is an, an extraordinary thing. And if you persevere and see each day is an opportunity to make progress, you can come out the better off for it. Welcome, everybody, to this next Kiwi Leadership Podcast, um, episode number two. I'm very grateful and excited to have my good friend, uh, Chris Lewis, from Southern California. Chris is one of New Zealand's true great tennis legends and sports persons, so well-known to reach the 1983 Wimbledon final, playing against John McEnroe and one of the greatest New Zealand moments. He is the recipient of the 1983 Sportsman Year of the World, was ranked up to world number 19, also won doubles titles, was on the professional tourist circuit for 12 years. He's the last New Zealand player to reach a Grand Slam. He was also part of the Davis Cup team in 1982, which reached the semifinals against France and was ranked number one in the world for juniors. And he won Wimbledon as a junior and also was in the USA junior as a finalist. As a coach, he's also succeeded, coached top players, including Ivan Lendl, world number one, Carl Ustes, world number 14, and New Zealand's Marina Arakovic, world number 39. Chris is now the co-founder of Brian Lewis Tennis Academy in Irvine, California. In a personal level, I've just learned so much of Chris. I'm really grateful for you taking the time to talk to our audience today. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Zephyr. Thank you for the introduction. And it's uh, a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you. Great, Chris. So just for the viewers here, tell us about where, where you're based at, at the moment. We've obviously, a lot of us grew up um, either watching or, or seeing videotapes or footage of that famous uh, finalist and, and know you from that. Whereabouts are you these days and what are you doing? Well, I've been in Southern California since the end of 2005 and I'm in Orange County, specifically in Newport Beach. And I run a tennis academy here called Brian Lewis Tennis which is based at what's called the Great Park, which is a multi-sport venue in Irvine, Southern California. Oh, that's great. So, and tell us, how did you, how did you end up in um, Southern California? What, was, what, was, um, what made you, how long have you been there and um, what, what made you go up there? Two main reasons, Xavier. Number one is it's a tennis hub. Southern California traditionally has always been the center of tennis and it's been Florida and Southern California are the two epicenters. So that was a factor. But also my kids were heavily involved in classical music in New Zealand and I wanted them to have the best opportunity in the U.S., to pursue their music when we moved over in 2005. Hence, Southern California was also very attractive for that reason. So tennis and music, really. Oh, that's great. So, and obviously, I've, I've heard your daughter play a few times. It's quite remarkable. All three of your children are credible classical musicians and it's a joy to watch. Can you just tell us a little bit about what your children are doing? And, and well, they're really adults now, um, what they're doing sure. and achieving. Well, they're all classical musicians full time and they got their start actually because I believe, we homeschooled, I believe that music should be a part of the curriculum and they just showed an early aptitude for it and things just progressed from there to the point where today they're all professional performers and uh, Nathan, the oldest, he's a violinist slash pianist and Rochelle, who's middle daughter, she's a cellist and Geneva, the youngest, she's a violinist. So in their own right, they're all very established and they're all doing very, very well. So uh, it's a long way from tennis, but what they've got in common, the two disciplines is they involve a high level of discipline and skill. So I'm very pleased to see that they found something they're passionate about, which they are. Oh, that's great to hear. So let's let's go back the similarities between tennis and music and the discipline and the things involved. Tell us about where, where you grew up and maybe your your upbringing and, and how that shaped you. Well, certainly, Xavier, when I look at my tennis career, it was shaped by a number of factors. Uh, primarily, my parents played. It's actually how they met. It was through tennis. It was a, through a shared love of the game. And as a result of that, we always lived by tennis courts. And I grew up, I was introduced to tennis in Lower Hutt, right next to the Lower Hutt Tennis Club, and lived in a small street 
And together with a number of young players or young kids in the street, we'd congregate at the tennis courts after school each day of the week and also on the weekends. And it wasn't a very big street, as I said. However, five of those children ended up representing New Zealand nationally, which I didn't realize it at the time. Obviously, I was young. However, it became very evident to me later on just how crucial an environment is in shaping somebody's love of whatever it is that they might get involved in to a greater extent later on in life. And certainly that initial introduction to tennis where I was sharing the same love of the sport with other players, the five of eight or nine people that go on and represent New Zealand internationally, I think that's an extraordinary outcome. Uh, And it's got to be the environment that gave rise to that. Wow. And my understanding, were some of those your your brothers or was they these friends? No, uh, Mark and David, my brothers, they played for New Zealand internationally and there were two other players, Carolyn Healy and Richard Ray, who represented New Zealand internationally Mm -hmm. under 21 events or junior events, but good enough to compete for New Zealand at an international level, which I think is amazing. Wow. So we've had you been the fortunate uh, to have you talk to our audience in America a few times. And one thing that was always really striking, you talked about playing as a kid, um, about the imaginary Wimbledon finals. And and then one day, you know, then you go to England and then you actually play in a final. I mean, uh, can you tell us about that? I just think that's it's really fascinating. And any thoughts about the visualization and any parts that played? Oh, certainly, Xavier. So just forwarding ahead, after Lower Hutt, my next big experience in tennis was attending the Benson and Hedges Open, which Mm. was a major professional event that actually hosted virtually all the top players in the world, including Rod Laver, Tony Roach, Billie Jean King, Pancho Gonzalez. And in those days, obviously, there was no internet. And what involvement I had with tennis at an international level was reading newspapers, listening to the radio, watching television, usually delayed telecasts. And here I am now at the Benson and Hedges Open in Auckland watching players that were legendary, number one, number two in the world, the men's and the women's. And I see them in the flesh. I get their autographs. And all of a sudden, it dawns on me that even though the passion for the sport had been instilled in me from a very early age, five or six years of of age, I realized then watching these players, you could actually play tennis as a career. So the impact that that tournament had on me was enormous. And as a result of it, a number of things came out of it. First of all, I started thinking about, hmm, if tennis is going to be a career, a legitimate career, I've got to start setting goals for myself. I've got to make Wimbledon. I've got to make the Grand Slams part of those goals. Uh, so to the extent that it had that impact, it was, it was then that I would start playing imaginary Wimbledon finals in the backyard with my brothers on the, on the grass there. And we would assume the names of some of those players, mm-hmm. Laver, Roach, uh, Roswell was there, and coincidentally, uh, later on in my career, Tony Roach became my coach. He was in the stands when I played Wimbledon in 1983 when I got to the final. It's amazing the interconnectedness of things. So it was the impact of seeing those players. I was 11 years of age. It was then that I consciously decided that I wanted to become a professional tennis player. It was then that I decided that I was going to set goals for myself that were consistent with becoming an international tennis player. So the impact of A, the environment and lower heart, sharing a passion for the sport with other young players my age, and then the impact of seeing the top professionals in the world as an 11-year-old, it literally shaped my future and my life, those two events. There were other milestones, of course, along the way. And then, you know, fast forwarding again a little bit where I went to England for the first time as a 16-year-old. The first thing I did when I got off the plane was go to the hotel, drop off my bags and go out to Wimbledon where I was going to be playing the tournament four or five months down the track. So here's the connection between five years of age playing tennis in Lower Hutt to seeing the top players in the world to then assuming their identities in the backyard to then going to the very place that you were pretending to play at when you were in the backyard. And you know, this was a year's projection where this dream was actually actualized. 
Wow, that's such a fascinating story. So going back into the you when you talk about the environment, how do we is there some sort of, um, you know, trying to find those environments for, for people listening? Is it something that you sort of have to look for or what, what should people look out for? I mean, I, I suppose maybe it was just, you know, a, a culmination of things come together that, that, you know, you suddenly realize, oh, this was a fantastic environment. But if people are trying to achieve in a, in a different field, what sort of things would you look out for? Well, just going back to the time when I was younger, when I was, in Lower Hutt, obviously that is not orchestrated. It just happened to be that we live next to a tennis club. It happened to be the case that there are other young players in the street that like tennis as well. And that was that was a little bit happenstance. Uh, if you don't include the fact that the mum and dad love tennis and they deliberately board next to a tennis club so that they can enjoy their tennis without having to jump in a car and drive to the courts. However, later on, when you have decided that you want to get somewhere, wherever that somewhere is. And in my case, it was becoming a top professional tennis player and winning top tournaments and competing against the world's best and being one of the world's best. Then you start considering all of the factors that are important to you. And when it comes to environment, when I was younger, it had to be fun. For a young player or for anybody that's participating in anything, I think you've got to look forward to turning up at the environment, to, to actually going along there and enjoying yourself. Because if it's not fun, I think it's going to be a disaster. You've got to look forward to it. But then later on, when you get a little older and you start seeking out environments that you think give rise to excellence and success, there are definite factors that have to be there. They have to be present. And I think it's got to be very pro-excellence. So you've got to surround yourself with like-minded people. You've got to surround yourself with people that are just as ambitious as you are, that are prepared to work as hard as you do, so that the values that you subscribe to or ascribe to are exactly the same as other people within that environment. Otherwise, I think it's too down-leveling. And if you are having to carry other people I think it's at the expense of your own success. So I would say it's hang out with success-oriented people, avoid any sort of mediocrity worship, avoid it like the plague, have an environment that's stimulating where your curiosity is, you can satisfy that curiosity by talking to people that share the same values as you do. And I think that, that that's the most important thing. It's the people in the environment that are, they are aspiring to reach the heights that you're aspiring to reach yourself. And I think everybody pushes each other upwards as opposed to down levelers that will drag you down. And it's sort of, I call it the crab bucket mentality where if you have somebody that's very, very success oriented and that person is surrounded by people who aren't, you'll get dragged down to the bottom of the bucket, just like the crab that tries to crawl out of the bucket, the rest of the crabs will pull together and bring the the one who's aspiring to get to the top back down. So Mm. look for people that are very success-oriented. It's got to be fun, but it's got to be challenging. And I think people that have got the same values that you've got, Xavier. That's fascinating. I haven't actually heard that analogy. That's quite an interesting one. Is that similar, do you think, to tall poppy syndrome in New Zealand, or do you think it's slightly different? No, it's exactly the same. Mm -hmm. It is. It's... It's mediocrity that resents, I think, being reminded of their mediocrity when they see somebody rising above them. And instead of trying to rise with them themselves, what they'll try and do is drag that person down. That is the tall poppy syndrome or the crab bucket mentality that are identical. Yeah, no, I think. And so how did you, at an early stage, get that belief and confidence. I mean, I think that's really remarkable at 11 years old, you know, that you hit now on the head in terms of being that hundred percent committed. There's a goal and it was a, you know, sing the single mindless we've talked about before. What do you think kind of turned the switch? Was it watching the Benson hedges or, or just kind of like seeing that, you know, some of these Australian and just to put context with the audience, I mean, Australia back then was really the place to go and, and, and uh, tennis. I mean, what was the, what do you think were the, the, the culminating things that gave you that confidence and belief? Well, this is where I've got to thank two New Zealand players, Brian Fairley and Oni Parent, because as an 11 year old, I saw the top players play, including 
Ani and Brian, who were fantastic players themselves. But when I was 15, I started beating players in New Zealand, men players that were ranked in the top 10. And as a result of that, I got invited, I got invited to be part of the New Zealand Davis Cup team. And of course, Brian and Oni were part of the team. So that was my first involvement, my opportunity to practice with world-class players. So now as an 11-year-old, I've not only seen, I've seen the, the world-class players play at 15, I'm now playing with world-class players. And I'm at the other end of the court with Oni and Brian. And prior to that, I thought I knew a lot about the game. And I realized then that I didn't know nearly as much as I thought. And that's why I say I've got a lot to thank Oni and Brian for because they taught me what success involves at the highest international level. You had Oni reaching the final of the Australian Open. You had Brian capable of beating the top players in the world. In fact, Brian beat Newcomb in that tournament in New Zealand, the Benson and Hedges in 68-69 season. And John was a triple Wimbledon winner. So now I'm playing as a 15-year-old against guys that have demonstrated a competence and a mastery over the sport. And I realized then that they were very, very different from previous players that I'd played, that they had something way over and above what the non-international New Zealand players had. And of course, it had a huge impact on me. And I think talking about confidence, it's a direct result of what I observed in Oni and Brian is a mastery over the subject matter. They could do things that other players simply couldn't do. They had attributes and strengths that other players didn't possess. So you, I realized then at 15 that if I were to reach certain heights, I had to develop skills that separated me out from 99.9% .9 of other players on the planet. And that's what I've got Oni and Brian to thank for because the work ethic, the mental toughness, Oni's mental toughness was extraordinary, an incredible competitor. Brian was tough too, but the work ethic, extraordinary. So they taught me about work ethic. They taught me about mental toughness. They taught me about practice routines. They taught me about true competition. So 15 years old was when I would say was the first time that I really had a glimpse of what it took to become a top professional tennis player. I got Oni and Brian to thank for that. Yeah, that's fascinating. And when we think about tennis, I suppose golf would probably be the only, yeah, similarly, I mean, in terms of mental toughness, you know, that really you, you don't really have anybody else to rely on. Let's just talk a little bit about Oni Parin. I mean, when I look at photos of him, that one with the holding the string, he's got so much pain in his neck and the determination. I mean, it's remarkable that he, it, it, that he could play such a level with all these things. So I'm just wondering, when you talk about, the, I suppose the mental toughness word gets thrown around. I know when you use it, it's, it's, it's very specific. What do you think mental toughness is? And particularly learning that you knew you obviously had a high level going to, you know, playing with, with Oni and, and Brian, but what did Oni specifically teach you? Cause we've talked before that, he made up with what he lacked in skill with his just so tough. So I think that's something for our audience that we all can learn. I know I could learn. What did, what did he teach you and how did he teach you? Well, first of all, just to give it some context, when you're evaluating a player, you might have to play them or you're evaluating yourself. There are four categories uh, of evaluation. You've got the technical, that's how you hit the ball, the strokes, the footwork, et cetera. You've got the, the, the physical where the stamina, the speed around the court, agility, that sort of balance, that's all physical. And then you've got the strategic. So you've got whatever strokes you've got, but it's how you use those strokes. Do you play a topspin shot? Do you play a drop shot? Do you play a deep shot, a wide shot? Do you come into the net? Do you serve a big first serve? Or do you spin it in, et cetera, et cetera? That's strategic. And then you've got the mental side of it. So when you take Oni and you look at the technical, there were a number of players that were Oni's equal, far, far more proficient actually than Oni in the technical area. Strategically, he was brilliant. He used what he had to the greatest effect. Physically, he was fantastic. But mentally, it was his strongest category by far. And what I learned from Oni was, A, that when you're playing a tennis match, and because of the unique scoring system, there, it's very rare that you will play with a match against somebody that's in your at your level 
reasonably close to your level where you might be losing, but a window of opportunity doesn't present itself where you can actually turn the match around. But only if you keep persevering and you keep displaying that determination where you let the guy know that even though he might be winning, that you're not going to go away quickly. And I would have to say in that respect, just the mental category, Ani was the equal of any player in the world, including the Wimbledon champions. It was the technical side where he didn't measure up, say, quite as highly as guys like Newcomb or Laver or Roach. But mentally, I would say he was the equal of a guy like Jimmy Connors, who was an unbelievably fierce competitor. So determination, the ability to remain unruffled under pressure, the bigger the point, the harder he tried. He didn't let the emotions get in the way. He always kept his wits about him. He's always looking for information that was going to help him in the match. So he was a guy that used every little bit of mental strength available to him to win a tennis match. And he had an amazing career as a result. So I would say that's what he taught me. Extraordinary under pressure. I'll give you a concrete example. So later on when Oni was, he was past his prime and very few people probably know this. I think he was the mile record holder at Wellington College Mm. for a number of years. I think he also played fullback there for the first 15. So obviously you got somebody who's very gifted in a number of areas. But then we were talking about mile times one time and he said, look, I think I could still run. And I forget the time. It might've been 800 meters. And we were talking about going sub two minutes for 800 meters. That's a, a pretty handy time being in the athletics field yourself. Now this is Oni, who's past his prime, Xavier, and we're having a conversation. And I said to him, Oni, I don't think you could go on to two minutes. And he said, well, I think I could. In my high school days, I think I could have done a sub two. And I, I said, okay, there's only one way to put it to the test. And he said, okay, let's go. So we went out there and it was in the domain in Auckland and off he went and he didn't do the sub two, but my goodness, the determination. Now this is somebody who hasn't trained to do a sub two minute mile, but he knew what times meant. He's, you know, he's probably doing his first 400 and in a sub 60 and he's just going out there cold. And the, you, we had to help him. I mean, it was incredible, the effort. How many people are capable of that sort of determination just to demonstrate that they're going to put their words into action? Yeah, that's incredible. I think it's really matching up what, you, what you're going to say and doing everything that's possible. So it's a lot of And also I said to him, I said, no, Ani, I was just kidding. We're not going to go. And he insisted. He said, no, he said, if I, I'm going to show you. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's, that, oh, that's, that's just fantastic. And with, with Brian, the work ethic there, I mean, he was just a, he would just stay out on the court all day and it was incredibly physical with training. And I'll tell you another lesson as far as the work ethic goes. So it was raining one day in Auckland and we couldn't play. There were no indoor courts. So Ani and Brian decided they were going to go for a run. So we went to the park and it was raining. That's why we couldn't play. So I had a tracksuit on that was a heavy tracksuit. And we took off in the first five or 10 minutes. You know how it is. You're in a group of three people. And Ani and Brian were talking, how long do you want to run for today, Ani? And I didn't know. This is my first run with them. I would have been 15 or 16. And one of them said, oh, how about, how about we do an hour? And I'm thinking, oh, you know, an hour, that's a significant run. It's, it's heavy rain. It's grass. It's starting to puddle. It's waterlogged. And after about 15, 20 minutes, I'm starting to feel it. And then I get left behind. I mean, these are guys that are in great shape and I finished a few minutes behind at the end of the hour, I'm determined. So I finished the hour, but behind them. And it was humiliating because I was doing my best to keep up with them. So at 15, I vowed to myself that was never, ever going to happen to me again. So that's when I started a training regime that was much more demanding than anything that I'd done previously. Once again, Arnie and Brian, I've got to thank for that. They showed me the way. It's why they were the way they were. They just did things over and above what the average guy would do. They weren't average guys. Yeah, and, and you were known as the fittest, one of the fittest people on the circuit. I mean, that was a, a reason a lot of people sought you out for coaching later on after your career. Is that correct? Yeah, that would be true. I mean, I really did take off-court training seriously and the on-court training, and there's a reason for that as well, is that I was fortunate enough to have an involvement with Harry Hoffman, who was a huge disciplinary in, the, in, in demanding that players were in great physical shape. And fortunately, when I had an involvement with Mr. Hopman at his academy in Florida, I went there in great shape and I left there in better shape. But certainly I felt that, you know, getting back to those four areas again, the physical, the technical, the strategic, 
uh, and the mental is that I certainly put a lot of emphasis on the physical because I didn't feel as I was doing myself justice unless I did that. So I always made sure that I was in good enough shape never to lose a tennis match because of tiredness. I don't think there's any excuse for that. Right. So let's let's pin that with with Mr. Hoffman. So you were at Wimbledon junior Wimbledon final. You've made the and you won that. Um, and then that's when Mr. Hoffman contacted you. Is that correct? Mr. Hoppin, yes, Xavier. What happened was Mr. Hoppin is still, to my knowledge, the winningest Davis Cup captain in Davis Cup history. And he was instrumental in the development of players such as Lever, Hode, Rosewell, Newcomb, Roach. The list goes on and on. It was in the golden era of Australian tennis. And he was the architect of it. He was a player himself. He played Davis Cup. And he was a huge believer in physical fitness. So as it happened in 1975, after I beat a player called Ricardo Acasa from Ecuador, but he based himself at Mr. Hoppin's Academy at that stage of things in Florida, Mr. Hoppin watched the match and he came up to me after the match to congratulate me, but more importantly, to invite me to his academy in Florida. And of course, I couldn't get there quickly enough. So I was there within a few months. I ended up buying a place there and I lived there for five or six years. It was my tennis base from 76 through to about 82, prior to getting involved with Tony Roach, who himself was a protege of Harry Hoffman. It's a small world, the tennis world, David. Oh, wow. So whereabouts was Mr. Hoffman based in Florida? And can you tell us about like those five or six years in Florida? Certainly, yeah. So he was the one who pioneered the tennis academy concept. It was a live-in arrangement where players would go and do their schooling at the academy. They would play five, six hours a day at the academy, combining with tennis with the school, and he oversaw it. So it was a 50-court complex, and you had a structured arrangement where there'd be two, two and a half hours of group play in the morning, another couple of hours in the afternoon. So you'd be on court four, five hours in a structured sense where Mr. Hoffman would have a team of coaches that would oversee each individual court and you would be placed on a court with three other players of similar ability to you. And when I was there, for example, the sort of people that we had dropping in were players like John McEnroe, Vitas Gerolaitis, we had ex-players, the caliber of Ken Rosewell, Lou Ho, Rod Laver that would drop in to see Mr. Hoffman again. And we would be invited to attend dinner with these former world champions and be fortunate enough to listen to the conversations they were having about life on the tour when they were ruling the tennis world. And the reason for that was because Mr. Hoffman felt that we had uh, a lot to learn from players such as Rod Laver, which we did. So once again, it was, it was a new concept, this academy. It, it wasn't anywhere else in the world. And today there's a ton of them. Thanks to Mr. Hoffman, it was a, a 50 court complex where you had the off court training with the gym, you had the running tracks, you had courts of different surfaces. So anybody that wanted to develop their game in their formative years, it could be done at the academy. Oh, wow. No, that sounds incredible. What an environment. I mean, just all those players coming, coming um, through. What was the, was it kind of a collegial environment? Like, I mean, was it any competitive nature or, or people sharing things or how, how did the players get on? The players, like anything. So you would gravitate towards players that you got on better with. But having said that, there was no choice about whom you would be with on court. So you might end up on court with a player that you didn't think much of, but would be a great player because the dynamic was such that, the ability level was the same on each court. So that was fantastic. But at the same time, because Mr. Hoppins had such enormous respect, because I was fortunate enough to be on the top court all the time, you would have access to the best coaches. And the demands and the challenges with Mr. Hoppin monitoring and his best coaches supervising, you couldn't have had a better environment for success. Going back to environment again, uh, this is something that is absolutely crucial in any champion's development is you you need the right environment. There are three factors. There's the genetics, and that's something you don't have any choice about. You're born with what you're born with. But then there's the environment. And Mr. Hoffman, in my view, had the best tennis environment. He established the best tennis environment for achieving excellence anywhere in the world. 
Uh, and that's the second thing. The third thing is, is the individual choices that people make as to how to best take advantage of their genetics and the environment that they're in. So it's those three factors. And it leads me to another point, Xavier, that I'd just like to, to stress here is that a lot of people think that life is something that just unfolds accidentally, that it's a series of circumstances that are outside your control. And when I look back at my development, that initial introduction to Mr. Hopman, he's a gentleman that I've been reading about in books as an 11-year-old. He's now coming up and introducing, and he was a hero to me when I was 11, 12, 13 years old. Now, here's the reality of Mr. Hopman coming up and introducing himself to me after I've won a junior Wimbledon final, and he's inviting me to his academy. Well, was that lucky, or was that a result of all of the things that have been put in place by me to create the opportunity for that to happen. So I don't say it's an accident. I say you create your own destiny by setting goals for yourself according to what you want to do with your life and what shape you want your career to take. So as an 11-year-old, when I made the conscious decision that I wanted to be a professional tennis player, I started mapping out what I had to do in a certain time frame with little mini goals on the way to those major goals. And that's why, I don't, that's why I think that meeting Mr. Hoppen in that circumstance was not lucky. It was a direct result of that sort of planning. And then as a result of that, I'm now having dinner at the same table as Ken Rosewell and Lou Ho. Yeah. Which it, 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 there's an interconnectedness. The point I'm making here is if you set long-term goals for yourself and the clearer those goals are, the better and then you break down that long-term goal into shorter-term goals that are all aligned with the long-term goal, I think you shape your own destiny. And I think too, I'd like to make the point that it is actually the achievement of goals that makes you happy. So if you, if you take a different course of action where you're like a cork in the ocean and you're waiting for the next tide to sweep you along in whatever direction it happens to take you, I don't think you're gonna achieve anything. But if you say, okay, here's my destination, and this is what I've got to do to get there, you so maximize the chances of that happening that I think that's the best advice I can give to anybody who's aspiring to get anywhere is to set long-term goals and work backwards so that the shorter-term goals are determined by that long-term goal that you want to reach instead of just going along like that cork in the ocean. Yeah, no, that, that's fast. That's really good advice for people listening. What when you talk about goals and long term and short term goals, what method, like when we think granularly, do you use? Do you have like, are you a diary person, like write goals out every day, or do you kind of like take, you know, one day a month and write in a book? How, like, take us back to those times and how did you do it, or did you just kind of think in your head, these are the things? No, I wouldn't document it. I tend, I'm a little abstract, I'm, I'm good with concepts and I can take mental notes and make sure that they're placed on the, the right shelves in the library in my head. So I didn't document anything, but that's just a personal choice. Documenting and diarizing, I'm all for it if that's what suits somebody's personality. I don't think there's any right answer to that. It's whatever you're most comfortable with. However, with me personally, when I looked at Laver and Roach, it became very evident to me that I had a long way to go. So I would say to myself, okay, my final destination, the pinnacle of tennis are the Grand Slams. There's Wimbledon, there's the US Open, there's the French, there's the Australian Open, and there's other lesser uh, tournaments in the hierarchy of things. But I'm looking at these guys and I'm saying to myself, I've got to create a game that's as good as theirs or aspire to create a game that's as good as theirs now I'm starting to think what I got to do with my game. Instead of just going out there and playing, now I'm giving thought to the specifics on the back end or the forehand or the serve or the movement. And I'm getting much more clarity because I've got concrete examples in front of me that are giving me the information that I require. I never had that before. Reading a book is not the same as seeing these players play live in front of you where I'm watching them courtside. So I started giving much more thought to what I had to do with my game to get to the, the heights that I wanted to achieve. So I said to myself, okay, realistically, I'm 11 years old. 
I think I can, I've got 15 or 16 years, mid twenties, late twenties to get to where I want to in tournaments. This is a race. That's not a, a long time in terms of a lifetime when you want to get from where you are as an 11 year old, who not even in the, the same, doesn't deserve to be on the same quarter at the same venue as these top players in the world. I realize then I've got a long way to go. So I've, I'm thinking, okay, this is a race. So I start seeing time is an opportunity to improve so that I can get to where I want to eventually get to. And it takes on a clarity that I would each day determine what I wanted to do to bring myself closer towards those goals. And, and just as a principle, if I can give you a concrete example of how I apply it in coaching today. So for example, if I'm working with a young player and I say to the young player, look, if you want to get anywhere, you've got to develop a much bigger serve. Right now, it's not as strong as it needs to be. So how about we look at putting 24 miles an hour onto your serve? And the player will look at me, that's a lot. In tennis speak, that is a lot of miles per hour. And the player will look at me like, mm, this guy's a little crazy maybe. But then I'll say, okay, 24 miles an hour, let's break it down. How many miles an hour do you have to improve that serve over two years, 24 months? And it's like, oh, a mile an hour a month. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. And then let's break that month down of a mile an hour into a week. And you say, yeah, that's putting on a quarter of a mile an hour a week. If you practice 80 or 100 serves a day, 700 serves in a week, do you think you can put on a quarter of a mile an hour a week? It seems impossible not to do when you see it like that. So there's a, a micro example of taking a long-term goal, breaking it up into small goals, and what seems impossible two years down the track or, or 24 miles an hour becomes impossible not to achieve if you break it up into those smaller chunks. Yeah, no, that's, that's, there's so much there to unpack, Chris. I don't know where to start. Just, yeah, having that long-term vision and then short-term goals and then micro goals and then almost micro, micro goals and kind of this whole concept of it's, it's almost, it's, it's, it's too easy not to fail, you know, and it's, 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 you know, so that's just so achievable. Can I just, I just, can I just yeah. interrupt say, because it just triggered something else that I think is valuable to anybody listening. Uh, I think too, the other thing that's crucial is that when you do determine those goals, whether they're private or public, is that you, you don't want to be going around telling people that you want to be winning Wimbledon. Or, you know, that's your choice. Those goals are your goals. If you tell people when you're younger that you've got an ambition to be a professional golfer or a professional tennis player, the odds of achieving that goal are statistically against you. So you will confront people that will tell you, and they're not necessarily, op necessarily operating in bad faith, but they'll say to you, and I confronted this many times, people telling me, no, you're wasting your time. Statistically, you're not gonna do it. Why don't you pursue an academic career? Give that up. New Zealand's too geographically isolated. There's too many barriers in your way. That's crazy. The odds are just, just unrealistic. And that's where you've got to make sure that you're absolutely certain in your own course of action and you don't sacrifice your conclusions to somebody else. Because the other hand, you don't know what their motivation is. They might be one of those crab bucket people that don't like the thought of you maybe achieving your goal one day when they're ascribing, they're aspiring to something that's uh, of much more mediocre career oriented thing. So I think that's number one, you've got to follow your own judgment, certainly listen to the people you respect. So if you are in athletics or you're in golf or you're in tennis and you've got a mentor or a coach that really knows the game inside and out and they tell you, look, nobody can tell you whether you're going to reach this height or that height, but certainly give it a shot. If, if at the end of the day, listen to those people, but not the people that, whose motives you don't really know. Uh, you've got to follow your own judgment and then just go for it. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. So you would just ignore ignore those people. You just kind of like not hang around those people. I would avoid them. But sometimes you're in a situation where it's involuntary. You know, it's not a voluntary association. It's an involuntary association. I can give you one example. I was in 
a class at school in my later year in high school where I had one particular teacher that was anti-sport and certainly understood that a lot of my time was spent at the tennis courts and not doing homework. And I was in the top class. I was doing well academically. I could have been doing better. However, it was an unbalanced decision between pursuing tennis or doing English homework. And for me, that was an easy choice. He didn't like that. So he would try and make fun of me or ridicule me or tell me that I was wasting my time pursuing a tennis career where I should be doing something like pursuing an academic career. And yeah, I sensibly ignored him. So had I listened to him and gone the direction that he was advocating, my life would have been completely different. But my point is, you've got to follow your own path. Having chosen that path, then you devote your time to achieving whatever it is, whatever goals you've set for yourself and doing that uncompromising. Yeah, I know that's fantastic. You must have been pretty strong though. I'd imagine even at school to have that um, you know, level, level of certainty. You know, Absolutely. Which is great, which is great to see. I'd also like to make the point that I was doing well. So the reality, there was evidence there that suggested that I was on the right track. So for example, when I was 11, I won the senior men's club championships in Auckland at the club I was at in Auckland. I was winning all the junior titles in my age group in the country and winning titles two, three years, playing kids two or three years older than me. And then at 15, I was beating players, adult players that were ranked in the top 10 in New Zealand. So I'm not an advocate of this blind optimism, this Pollyanna sort of, you you can be anything you want to be without any evidence to support it. And that's where the small goals come into play because you need the evidence that gives rise to the fact that you are on the right path. You've got to confirm that you are heading in the right direction. So go back to that serving analogy. If you're getting the radar gun out and you're seeing that you're improving half a mile an hour per week or a quarter of a mile an hour per week, there is evidence to let you know that you're on the right path to achieving that 24 miles per hour game. And that's where the tournaments and the competition, the results don't lie. So there's the evidence. So it it wasn't as if I was just saying with no evidence back reality behind me to the English teacher, no, I'm going to be this because I want to be this. There was evidence there to support me. That's fantastic. So you're probably the first person I've heard that has this visual thing, which is just fascinating and bring it. I'm just fascinated. Do you have this idea and do you kind of just work on it? And how do you do that? One. And two, is it something that when do you have these two, like, cause sometimes these ideas come in, you, you know, you're going for a walk or is it during tennis or is this alone time? But I'm just really interested because I know goals is a big part of who you are and, and what you've achieved, but this is that, that whole process is quite interesting. Cause it's not, it's not something that people, people will say, write your goals down, write them every day. You're saying, you know, no, it's actually, um, you know, it's a, it's almost like a visual thing and actually maybe it would be right to say subconscious um, in terms of trying to get these things and maybe they evolve and then you kind of, you know, pinpoint it and then you get a bit more information and then certainty. I mean, I'm just interested to delve a little bit into that exact way you do that. It's really fascinating. Well, for me, I think take the connectedness between those imaginary Wimbledon finals in the backyard. And funnily enough, it was, Wimbledon in the Davis Cup that would get more mileage than the Australian Open, the French and the US Open. And you talked about the subconscious. I'm convinced that the fact that I played the majority of those imaginary finals as a Wimbledon final, and I don't think it's any accident that I won junior Wimbledon and got to the final of Wimbledon itself. And I think there's a direct correlation between me playing the imaginary finals in the backyard. It wasn't the Australian Open final. So I think by the time, and then when I got off the plane in London for the first time as a 16-year-old, went straight out to the Wimbledon courts, that was buried deep within me. There was a reality to that that I think was initially given rise to in the backyard where I felt like it was truly my destiny to do well at Wimbledon. Uh, And it was something that I'd thought about, I would say, virtually every day of my life at some stage where... It became my life. I felt that I was literally born to be a tennis player and that Wimbledon was a place that was very special to me. It was the mecca of tennis. And I think there is a link between the reality of what you're doing as an 11-year-old as to how things turn out 
in a career as an adult. And a lot of interviews that I've listened to where you've listened to people in various fields, such as authors, and they'll say, they'll be asked the question, when did you decide that you wanted to write books or become an author? And they'll tell you, well, I loved it at school. I was nine or 10 years old and I enjoyed writing. The teacher would tell me that I wrote good essays and it hit me then that, oh, one day I can write books. And I hear that time and time again. And I think that even though they might, those, those people might not have given it as much conscious thought as I give it, they made that decision that they wanted to become an author as a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old. That happens a lot. Golfers is a fascinating story with Nick Felder that I won't go into now, but that fascinated me, the, how that unfolded and how he eventually became the number one golfer in the world. And then listening to people like Yvonne Lendl, Jim Courier, Andre Agassi, or Boris Becker, all number ones in the world and listening to their stories, and you find out that they've got things in common that unite them. And then you compare that with your own development and how you formulated your own ideas. And, and just getting back to not documenting it, I've always been good with abstract concepts. And I can, like with mathematics, for instance, I'm probably faster in my head than I am on paper because the numbers have a reality to me. I think when I'm playing those Wimbledon finals in the backyard, it became very, very crystal clear what I wanted to be doing as a 25 or a 26 year old. And I think that there is a definite link between the abstract and the concrete, what's in your head. And I spoke about books being on the library shelves in my head. I think that if you give something enough focus and enough thought that the mind is an incredible thing. And I think you can achieve amazing clarity if you zero in on something with enough intensity. There's so much in there. That's, that's fantastic, Chris. I mean, clarity and focus and visualization and, you know, just that belief. And I think thinking about it every day. So I think that's something we all can take back um, looking at goals. So I, I thank you for, for sharing that. That's really powerful. Thank you, Xavier. Can I just concretize that with another little anecdote here? So I read a study where they took basketball players and they divided and they're all of equal ability. So they took two groups of basketball players uh, with every player in the two groups being a pretty much equal ability. And they said to one group, listen, guys, you're not allowed to think about basketball. You're not allowed to touch a basketball. You're not allowed to do anything basketball for the next however long, let's say two weeks. And they said to the other group, you're not allowed to touch a basketball. You're not allowed to play basketball, but we want you to think for about basketball for a certain amount of time each day. And then we're going to get together at the end of two weeks or a month or however long the time frame was, and we're going to do free throws and we'll see who performs better. So they took the non-visualization group and measured them and compared them with the group that had visualized every day. And the difference evidently was so huge that visualization is without any shadow of a doubt plays a huge role in the preparation for whatever it is that you're, whether it's a performance, a music performance, whether it's a tennis match, whether it's a big golfing occasion, whether it's giving, it's that visualization, what, you know, getting back to what the mind is capable of. If you see yourself performing in your mind prior to the actual performance itself, I think it's massively helpful. You know, if you've got a familiarity over the occasion that you're going to become involved with, when that occasion presents itself, you feel as though you've already done it. Just like the Wimbledon finals in the backyard prepared me for the real thing. Going over a speech prior to giving it prepares you for the real thing. A, a golfer practicing his putts in the final round of the US Open on the 18th hole is preparing himself for that huge occasion. And I think you can't underestimate the power of visualization as to how you want to perform at some stage, whether it's near term, whether it's medium term, whether it's long term, I think it prepares you for it. I think it's something that you've got to take advantage of for sure. Yeah, and absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. So let's just move on going through. So you've, you've, your career is pretty fascinating, you know, top junior uh, well, really number one in the world for junior. And then you get, there's a story obviously between, which unfortunately we're not going to get through the whole thing. Just I think some of these concepts are so, there's so much in there, but you, you do go through different ups and downs and persevere. Um, and, you know, there's a whole story in there now. And then you're at 
Wimbledon final with John McEnroe. Let's just go back to the semi-final. I think that was probably one of your most remarkable matches. I don't know if that's a fair comment, but tell us a little bit about, you know, preparation, handling pressure, and just being on the biggest stage in the world. Um, and then also, do you have any comparisons? From, you were there in 1975. Was there any comparison of like lessons learned there and also with the US final as a, as a junior? Um, be interested in your thoughts, Chris. You certainly, Xavier, as far as the preparation goes, it wasn't my first time, even though I would agree with you, that was my most significant match in my career, that semifinal against Kevin Curran on the center court at Wimbledon, which is the world stage of tennis. But what comes prior to that is what prepares you for such an occasion. The Wimbledon center court is a place where you find out about yourself because you've got two players now vying for a place in the Wimbledon final with everything at stake. And the, consequ- the, the difference between winning and losing is massive. However, I'm not sure how Kevin arrived there, but for me personally, the preparation came in overcoming adversity. So you have to deal with things like injuries. You've got to deal with things like the disappointment of losing, big matches. You've got to deal with all sorts of off-court issues that interfere with how you might be playing on court a particular day. So you learn very quickly that sport is a microcosm for life. But you also learn that by just the nature of competition, you're constantly battling adversity. You're playing a player that's doing his best to beat you. You want to beat him. He's in your way. So you can either run away from it or you can confront it and meet the challenge head on. And I think with sport, one of the great things about it is it teaches you how to deal with pressure. It teaches you how to deal with adversity. It teaches you that when you overcome adversity, you come out the other end of it, the better for it. And all of those things, I think, played a role in preparing me for that match against Kevin Curran in the semifinal. I was up and then all of a sudden I was down and it looked like I was going to lose and I came back from the brink and won, just as I did in the semifinals of Junior Wobbledon, just as I did in the semifinals of the Junior US Open. So knowing that you can overcome what appears to be situations that almost look like impossible, having previously overcome them because of that mental toughness, because of those things that you learn from people like Ani Parra, that when you get to the world stage like that, where you've got hundreds of millions of people watching, not, not just the center court crowd, but you've also got a TV audience, you've got the world press, you've got the world stocks for Wimbledon as it does for the Olympic Games, as it does for World, you know, world Cup in soccer. It's a hugely international event. And here you are right in the middle of it, competing for the final of the world, effectively the world tennis championships. And it's those previous experiences of overcoming adversity and fighting and not giving up that brings you to that place. And I think that that is life. It's how you, how you deal with adversity, how you overcome the challenges, realizing that it's in the nature of things, that it's never a straight line progression upwards, there are ups and there are downs. And you actually learn the most, I think, in the down periods because you know when you overcome those down periods, you end up better off for it. It makes you stronger. There's no question. It's not just a, a platitude or a bromide. It makes you stronger. And then the center court is where you find out about those things. That's fascinating. I mean, we're going through obviously a tough time um, as we record this podcast. You know, we're kind of in the middle. We are in the middle of a, a, a terrible COVID-19 pandemic and I was in California what lessons that you learned there with like dealing with adversity and kind of you know almost sort of riding the wave so to speak what what, what lessons do you think we could learn from that going well, through think, adversity now I think is a first of all Xavier I think when it comes to adversity there are things that are within your control and there are things that are absolutely outside of your control and COVID is something that obviously is outside people's control so when i look at the impact that it's had on me personally and the business personally it's been monumental there was a lockdown and as a result of that lockdown the business was decimated so you've got years of work that in one fell swoop because of the lockdown is now out the window, doesn't exist anymore. So we now have to pick up the pieces, what's left of what was a thriving operation and start from square one because 
we effectively lost our business to competitors who were able to operate when we weren't because of the venue that we were operating from. So once again, though, it's you can cave into it. You can just say life's too tough and I'm going to do something else and I'm not prepared to pick up the pieces and rebuild what we'd established before or I can fight and we can do whatever it takes to get back to where we were pre-pandemic and just meet the challenge head on, knowing that if you give it everything, that you can overcome any challenge. And that's what we've done. My partners and I have, have rebuilt a business that had 600 plus customers pre-pandemic, were decimated down to a handful of players after the lockdown. And now we're back stronger than we ever were. But that didn't just happen magically. It was a result of all of those things that gave rise to doing well at Wimbledon, having a successful professional tennis career. They weren't just going to happen by themselves. You have to make them happen. And I think that's, you know, for people listening, I think when it comes to challenges, I think you've got to do everything you can to, to find a solution to those challenges. And once again, the mind is an, an extraordinary thing. And if you persevere and see each day is an opportunity to make progress, you can come out the better off for it. And that's what we've done. And I'm proud to say that we're back stronger than we ever were nine months after seven, eight months after the lockdown is over. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. I think a lot of people listening will take heart in that. So thanks for sharing that, Chris, um, you know, in these, these tough times. So, so we're tracking through. So you went to Wimbledon, had the professional career, and you then you did top-level coaching, uh, Yvonne Lindor, these top players, and then also down in uh, Auckland. Just tell us a little bit about the coaching and then going through from the different levels, because you've really done it all, really, and then from the US then coming back. So just to loop us back to the, where we started at the start. Well, I think the major transition when you – you transition into coaching after having a playing career, playing career yourself is that you're now not looking at, it's not self-interest. So when you're, when you're a competitive tennis player, it's all about you performing when you're coaching, it's all about the other player performing. So the orientation is very different. It's getting the most out of the other player. So I think having a professional background myself, it made it relatively easy for me because the question I would ask myself is, what would I like if I were, Carlo Vestit, for example, was the player that I first coached who became number 14 in the world. What did I like when I was the beneficiary of Mr. Hoffman's advice or Tony Roach's advice? And then whatever I learned from them and from other people whom I greatly respected, I would pass on to Charlie, realizing that it's all about Charlie. This is not about me. This is conveying information to Charlie that is going to make him a far better tennis player and putting myself in his shoes, asking what would Mr. Hoffman have done in this situation? What would Tony Roach have done in this situation? You've got world-class examples of not just great tennis coaches, great people. And you've had the, the benefit of being involved with those great people, learning from them, and then passing on to people like Charlie Steed uh, the, the benefits of that involvement you've had with your mentors. So that was the biggest transition to make, is that you are not the center of your own attention. The other players are. And with Ivan, I went from Kaluve Steve, who got to number 14 in the world, a fantastic guy, just an extraordinary guy, hard work, couldn't have asked for a better student. And he had a great career. He became German Davis Cup captain. So, and we, we still keep in touch today. And then from there, I went with Ivan Lendl, who was in, at that stage ranked number one in the world for the longest time of any player in history. And it was fantastic having an involvement with Ivan. And to this day, we still keep in touch, just learning from and, and collaborating with a number one player who was just an extraordinarily mentally tough person, but great, great human being as well. And from that, then I went to junior tennis in Auckland where my brother Mark and I ran the Tennis Auckland Junior Development Program for almost a decade. And out of that came Marina Rakovic, who is along with Benelinda Caldwell, the second best female player in the country's history. And there were other really good juniors that came out of that that ended up playing the junior grand slams. So now I'd seen coaching at the top level in the men's pro career, also seen it at junior career international level, and then went to the States where we're deal dealing with all levels of ability and all ages. So I've seen the full spectrum when it comes to coaching Xavier. 
That's well, that's great. And then, so when did you move to United States? At the end of 2005, it was December 2005, and I started working here January 2006. And um, where to from here? So you're, as we said in the start interview, you're based in the Great Park. You've got this fantastic setup. and you've really done a remarkable job, as we just talked about with, uh, with the challenges of COVID. And I think that's been really inspirational for people listening. What, what's on with your plans going, going forth this year or, or just in general? So what we've got in place here, we've got a number of different programs. We've got a 10 and under program, which is now, it may even be the biggest 10 and under program in the United States. It's, it's possible, certainly in Southern California, certainly in California. So we've got the entry level. We've got five, four, five, six, seven-year-old players entering our program under the umbrella of highly competent coaches and highly motivated coaches, which then we've got a program that they can feed into that's more uh, advanced at an older level. And two main thrusts for us, we want to provide pathways for young players to get into the top colleges in the U.S., or if they show even more promise to make it on the pro career. So the next step for us is putting in place a program that caters more to the international level junior that's an aspiring top college player or top pro. That's the one area that now we need to fill that gap. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So anybody listening out there, uh, you know, I know where I would be if I was a young tennis player and that be in, in your backyard there in, in Irvine, California, Chris. Uh, really good for New Zealanders out there or New Zealanders living in the US or just US people. Amazing opportunity, uh, fantastic weather all year round. So that's, that's just great to hear. Just a few final questions. Can you, this, this wrapping things up, what is your final bit of advice with people? You've just touched on some amazing things. Um, is there anything that you would like to add for the audience in terms of final advice and sort of goal setting or just people to reach their potential? I think, Xavier, just summarizing just very briefly what we've gone over, I think seeking out people of like mind that are very success oriented and are just as driven as you, I think that's crucial. I think having long-term goals and then breaking up the achievement of those long-term goals into shorter-term goals, I think that's crucial. So environment and goal setting, and I think they go hand in hand. A bad environment can ruin a potential champion. There's no question of that. But to be a champion, you've got to be in a good environment. And I think that being with people that share your values makes it that much easier. And I think that that's something that I would highly recommend. Seek out the best, learn from them, be one of them yourself. Yeah, you couldn't have any more better advice. So we're called Kiwi Leadership Network. Um, what does Kiwi Leadership mean to you, Chris? I think Kiwis were geographically isolated. So I think that to survive internationally, to do well internationally, you've got to be mentally tough. And I think what applies to tennis applies equally to any career. Because if you're going to make it in any field, if you want to do it on a big scale, you've got to, if it's music, for instance, you, you've, got to, you've got to go to Europe, you've got to go to the US. If it's sport, if you're a golfer, a tennis player, you've got to participate internationally. So I think mental toughness, and I think as far as leadership itself goes, to me, it's, it's not so much talking about it, it's actually doing it. I think it's it's for me, when I look at the leaders that I've had an involvement with, such as Tony Roach and Harry Hopman, they were people that did it. And if you were to say to yourself in confronting any situation, if you can answer this question, what would they have done faced with this? Those are the people that are leaders. You want to know, you take some natural born losing mentality. You're not going to ask yourself, what would this natural born loser have done in the face of this situation? Unless, of course, you're using that to do the opposite. You're taking people, the leaders, and asking yourself, what would they have done? And I think you want to be that person yourself. Well, people say about you, what would Xavier have done in this situation? And if they're calling on you as that example, you're a leader. That's great, Chris. Well, thanks very much. Where can people follow you or learn more about what you're doing great with, with the Tennis Academy? 
Oh, they can contact our academy. We've got a website called BrimerLewisTennis.com. Brimer is spelled B-R-Y-M-E-R, BrimerLewisTennis.com. There's a contact page there. It's best viewed on a computer than it is on a phone. You get an idea of what we're all about. You can contact us here. I've got Brimer Lewis Facebook page. I think my own personal Chris Lewis page, you can contact me there. Uh, relatively easy to get a hold of me. That's great. So... Thank you very much for your time. This is another interview podcast with the Kiwi Leadership Network. You can subscribe to us and we'll have show notes, all those links. Thanks very much, Chris Lewis, again, for your time, your leadership and for leading us again in Southern California. We look forward to hearing more and, and watching all the prodigies that, are, that you're teaching. And Xavier, I'd just like to personally thank you for establishing such a worthwhile organization as the Kiwi Leadership Network. It's an absolute privilege for me to be involved. Any way I can help New Zealanders, I'd be proud to. And I would like to, you asked me about leadership. You are the person that founded and established this organization, Xavier. You are a true leader. The amount of people that are going to get an enormous amount of benefit from what you've established. You can't overstate that. So I would like to personally thank you for your effort and the thought that's gone into it. Mind-blowing. Thank you. Well, thank you, Chris. Well, we look forward to um, learning more. So thanks again. <laughs>